the class for a bit. I'm not going to give it to you right away. For here now, I'm going to start talking about something called the St. Paul mindset. The St. Paul mindset. I want all of us to have some things we all know we not only think and agree on, which is what our catechism should be to begin with, but that we do to support each other in that. And I'm just going to start today by telling you that part of this St. Paul mindset is that you don't come to church alone. And by that, I don't mean you have to invite a neighbor. I mean, you bring something with you. And by that, I mean more than money. Right now, we've already transitioned to being a congregation that brings hymnals with us. And while this is an accidental result of a pandemic, I think it's something to build on. I think it's something to embrace and identify with. In fact, I heard about it from one of you, that the hymnal has had such an impact on life that it goes everywhere all the time now. And that's actually what the hymnal is good for. The first thing that you have in the St. Paul mindset is beginning to understand that at least means bringing your hymnal to church, but it also means maybe taking it out at home, maybe having it in the car. Uh, I, I just, um, I'll keep this private as best I can, but I learned about a scenario when, in which somebody was in the hospital recently. And my first response was, do they have their hymnal? Can you get it to them? And I was thinking pre-COVID. Oh, wait, you can't so easily, can you now these days? Another good reason that just think about having your hymnal with you. If you happen to go into the emergency room, take a hymnal. Yeah, take some reading or it's just you and the TV for how long? Your phone, is that going to keep you safe? I don't know. Your Bible and hymnal can be on your phone, by the way. But I'm just finding a love of paper these days because along with the hymnal, what you need to have a St. Paul mindset is going to be a pen. And usually with the pen, a piece of paper, which the hymnal happens to be. <laughs> and if you own one, you can write at it. And no one's going to yell at you but yourself. And if you're yelling at yourself, you're not going to get very far in life. Right? Can we agree on that much? Okay. So St. Paul mindset, I'm just going to say you're going to go farther, no more, understand better what I say, and put it to practice in your life if you write something down. So consider on your hymnal, on your bulletin, in fact, the back of the mailing we send to you is built for that. St. Paul Mindset, that's the newsletter. Um, St. Paul Mindset, hymnal, pen, paper, and then Bible. Please don't think that I would not encourage you to bring your Bible to church, given that I'm going to be talking about it for the next 30 minutes. And that if you really want to understand it and not just have the feeling goods like you'd get from a TV show, you got to write something down. And then later, you got to go back to what you wrote down. You got to read it just once. All it takes is once. It's, it's so much easier than school makes you think it is, honestly. If you just write down what the teacher says, read it later and write it down one more time within like 24 hours, you'll pass every test with at least 80%. Every time is how I got through accidentally. Now that I know how to do it, it's even better. And I want to teach you. It'll help you with your Bible. Write something down. Make it interesting. Don't write down something random, right? Something I say that's good. Write it down and ponder it. You might even find you carry it with you all week because it's so hope-filled. You just want to hear it again and again. And writing lets you do that. It's pretty cool. So something to think about. I'll talk about that more in the future. Digging into the text itself then. We have three texts before us, all of which are incredibly awesome. The one I want to give the most attention to, however, is Romans 6, 19 to 23. Because it is weird on a number of levels. We just had a Romans 6 passage a week ago, and I spent so much time telling you how amazing it was that it, it's like this high point, and then you, you follow up with this, and it just comes off as like, well, okay, Paul, unless you really slow down. And then you see that Romans 6 and the declaration to you from last week that your sin 
is dead so far as God is concerned. That when he sees you, he doesn't see your sin at all. And so you should also consider your sin your sin dead, both before and after you do it. Not so that you would do it. You actually will try harder not to do it if after you've done it, you don't try to cover it up and hide it. But instead, you just call it what it is and say it's dead in Jesus. So he's emphasized that, but he has emphasized that for a reason, to encourage you to try, to encourage you to build, to encourage you to not take the gospel that Jesus did everything and say, that means I do nothing. You cannot add to what Jesus did, but you still have a life to live on this planet. And frankly, if your religion is not changing your mind about anything ever or not challenging you to, to wonder why people are lying to you all the time, then you don't have the religion. And that's something to be aware of too. That's really the heart of this argument. He wants you to ask yourself by the time you get to Romans chapter seven, the good that I would do, I do not do. That which I would not do is that which is I do. Who will save me from this body and flesh of death? Thanks be to God for Jesus. It's a great piece of literature and truth and preaching and all that. But before you get there, Paul wants you to know this, that once upon a time, you were a slave to sin. And now you're not. And I want to come back and talk about that as the meat of the sermon after we touch on these other two texts, which are going to enhance the closing, if, if I can say it that way. So the Old Testament, the first reading is Genesis chapter 2, which at first glance will seem really far away from what we were just talking about. And in some ways it is. And it's also just an awkward or out of place, a lectionary reading uh, in terms of what you will have learned, if you've just sat and listened to people talk about Genesis ever, you won't have even really gotten to this most of the time. Um, and yet it's got some amazing stuff if you're interested in things like flood theory. How do we connect science and what we know by studying what we can see to the idea that there was a worldwide flood? This is cool stuff. It's also really cool in my mind for imagining how amazing mankind was when everybody who was an average human lived 900 years and had one common language and never misunderstood each other. What could they have achieved in that time? Now, we know it was great evil. That is, they all hated each other and were killing each other by the time that God flooded it. But that doesn't mean it wasn't cool. It didn't mean there weren't flying cars and who knows what's it. It means that there was something incredible before then. And what we're told is just this, this little bit here. And most of what we get into there has to do with was the planet like the planet is now. There's these four rivers, all from Eden, which is in the east. Well, where on earth is that? Scholars used to try to tie it to the Indus River Valley in India, the crescent, fertile crescent you may have heard of also in, in the Middle East, where the Tigris and the Euphrates named now flow. Uh, the challenge is then again, all of this text is from before the worldwide flood at which both the windows of heaven and the fountains of the deep, miraculous destructive forces uh, occurred in history and did everything up to and maybe including tilting the earth's axis. I don't know what other ramifications were, but nothing lived that wasn't on one boat. I know that. I mean, the water creatures. But it was that cataclysmic. It was so intense that you can make the case today that the carbon dating results that are millions of years are because of the hyperdensity that occurred in the crushing impact of the flood. Water, as I hope you know, is a very powerful force. Again, you can dive into Genesis on this stuff on the internet with Christians who are not Lutheran and find some really good stuff on it. You always want to be careful because they won't bring you back to Jesus most of the time. And that's, that's the challenge with reading heterodox, non-Lutheran sources. But there's, that's all here, right? I'm not even concerned about that today. 
What I want to zoom in on is the question that always bothers everybody once they look at this text more than once, I think. And that is, why on earth did God put the tree of the knowledge of good and evil in the garden? Like, like what was that lunatic thinking? It was all perfect. He called it very good. Nothing more could be done to it. And then he puts a tree there and says, don't eat of it or you die. That doesn't sound good in any way, shape, or form to me. What was he doing? Is he a wicked God? That's what the atheist will say. And he's right from a certain perspective, especially if we just read it with the English, and especially if we forget about this little tidbit I've tried to teach you in the past, some Latin, opinio legis. You can hear most of the English, opinion of the law. We always want to think it's about us and what we're going to do. Every story, every mythology, every hope, until Jesus gives us a different hope in himself. And even then, this selfish hope goes with us. With that said, then, we have to understand this tree from before there was such a thing as a selfish hope. And can you imagine? I mean, you've done this as a kid. Try to imagine right now, ice cream in heaven. Imagine it. I mean, I actually had had an unhappy feeling as I realized I'm still thirsty. And so it was not a positive experience for me. Maybe yours was positive and, and pleasant. But I'm pretty sure whatever you imagined is not actually what ice cream in heaven is going to taste like. You can't get there. You're, you're too trapped. The movie The Matrix, which is really worth watching, uh, Agent Jones says this to, uh, what's his name again, Morpheus. Agent Jones is a computer. Morpheus is a human trying to fight for humans to live against the computers. And he says, Agent Jones says, well, we tried to build a perfect world for you to live in. You didn't want it. You kept breaking it. I love that moment in that movie. Is this true? That's what we are. And that's what Romans 6 is going to get us to. All this said, again, this has to do with the way we look at this tree now. Now we're going to try to look at it from before it's possible to be selfish, before it's possible to have to pass a test to be good. God called it good. It's already good. You really think, I mean, this is the insanity of arguing that it's a test. You're saying that Almighty God made the perfect world, but for Adam to really be truly good, He had to choose God without God. Man had to work to make paradise better or actually truly good. That's your argument, the test? I think that's insane. I think it's what the Pope would teach. It's what the Pope does teach, not effectively. Well, he does. He teaches us a test, I believe. Most Protestants do too, frankly. What else is it, though? What if it's the gospel? What if it's the actual best news in the whole bit? It's the end for pity's sakes. Why would he end with terror if this is about the end of paradise? We've just been described this flourishing garden with multiple crescent valleys of river. I mean, what kind of land is this place? And he puts at the heart of it, well, not just at the heart. Think of this too. There's more there. There's trees everywhere. Wherever you go, there's a tree. So you never have to worry about food because at this time and place, you can live on nothing but fruit. It says as much. Now, I challenge you, if you want to be, you know, if you want to fact check me on this one, go for it. Really don't. Read about it instead. But you can't live on fruit. You can't. You cannot make an argument from the Bible that we should live on vegetables or fruit, and certainly not on fruit predominantly. If you want to try to make us live like we're perfect beings, you're going to have a fruititarian effect. And I can tell you, you're going to be on the toilet a lot, and you're not going to look healthy. You're not going to be healthy. Our bodies have changed with the fall. It's a different topic. 
But at the time, imagine now that you could live on apples and oranges. I mean, you don't want to try this. <laughs> it won't feel good. But imagine you could. Now, pre-sugar, no candy, that kind of thing, right? Uh, everywhere you go, you're hungry. You need something substantial. There's an apple on a tree for you. Eat it. You go on loving your life with everybody else around. That's trees everywhere in the garden. And in the middle of it is the tree of life. And the tree of life, I mean, we don't get much more from it here. We're told later, uh-oh, now that they're wicked, don't let them eat it. And then we're told at the end, Revelation, different book entirely, it's Jesus. It's him and what he's going to do for us. Well, that's a big leap, and there's a lot of ways to understand how that makes sense. But what is it here? It's a tree that we don't eat from for some reason. And this is the part, if you want to be confused about something, here's the tree of life that makes you live forever. You can eat from it. And we didn't. I think if I had to wrap my mind around it, C.S. Lewis's answer in Paralandra, it's a fictional book worth reading, is, is the best one. Um, oh, I lost the question in thinking about Paralandra. It's, I'm going to just give you a commercial for Paralandra. It's an amazing story about a man who goes to space before we knew what space was like. So you have to like, for, it's like Star Wars, but even you can breathe in space almost kind of thing. He's just imagining. But the whole story is looking at the fall of Adam and woman from the perspective of someone who is fallen, the main character who lands on this planet, and someone else who's fallen, an antagonist character who is demon-possessed and is the one trying to break the planet. It's a fantastic story, and in it, he talks about whatever I wanted to tell you about before that I lost. Ah, the trees in the garden. Yes. So the idea, again, that this tree of the knowledge of good and evil is there, but the tree of life is there, and we haven't eaten of that tree, and why? Well, the reason is we don't know what death is yet. And that's the answer from Lewis. We don't know what death is at this point. So here's the tree that makes you live forever. And you're like, cool. I, I, mean, I already, what does that mean? Right? I already do. And here's the tree beside it that is the tree of knowing that you're never going to die. Let's call it that now. Not the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. The tree of knowing that you're never going to die. Here's the tree of you eating and living. Here's the tree of knowing you're never going to die. You eat this one, you live, and you don't eat this one, and you know you're never going to die. It's not that you can't eat it, you just, you just don't, and then you never die. It's really cool. It's, it's a promise to declare to you that I, your God, now put all of that into this context, behind this, the Lord God is saying, there are some things you will never understand. I'm your creator, and death is the thing you're never going to understand. And evil is the thing you're never going to understand. I'd say, God bless you, but I am God. I bless you. Amen. End of Genesis 2. Enter the serpent but it's not a test. You with me on that much? It's not a test. Uh, of course, there's always more you could say on Genesis, but Mark chapter eight now, the feeding of the 4,000. I love this text particularly because it's awkward. But his awkwardness becomes its glory. And we can make that case for all of St. Mark's gospel. St. Mark's gospel is the one that as I was growing up as a kid, and as I was coming back to church from unbelief, and as I was going through seminary, it was always sort of like the poor man's gospel. It's just nobody really cared that much about it. And when you're a young student at the, at the seminary, people kind of, they do their little alpha male, like, like chest bumping thing, but it's theological. Like, oh, I think I'm an exegete, and I'm going to write a commentary on, on Matthew, because it's the best gospel. Like, we do that with each other. We're just young bucks trying hard, and we're finding our way. But nobody thinks about Mark when we're doing that. 
And there's a reason Mark's been poo-pooed and poo-pooed and poo-pooed through the last 200 years of history as being written by a moron, effectively. Some guy who barely knew much, found some scraps of paper about Jesus hundreds of years after the event, tacked it together, didn't even read it once, and notice there's two feedings of thousands of people, and then published it in the dumb Christians who were already believing what the Roman government told them to believe, ate it hook, line, and sinker, and now, you know, stop believing in Jesus, go to your gender studies class at college. I mean, that's, that's what it's been in higher ed, even theological higher ed, for 200 years. Now, but faithful teachers at that level are rare, and thankfully, most of our universities in the LCMS have striven to make faithful teachers normal, but I cannot confess it always has been true. It's not important to chase that now. What's important is to learn that Mark doesn't deserve any of this. It's my favorite gospel. Now, I'll just declare it to you straight up. It's by far my favorite gospel, and I still don't pay it enough attention because I always give it kind of the, the upward nose turn. But every time I'm drawn into it because I have to be, like this week, it reminds me of just how good it is. And let me just, if you're going to write something down as a note for later to think about, Mark's gospel, I believe, is a dark gospel. You might call it a gospel noir, as one one professor calls it. I think that might go too far, but that's a style of literature out of California in the 30s and 40s, the, the detective series with the, the darkened alleys. And Friday, I went to the store and I had to buy this. Jimmy was there, you know, on my way. The tail was on me, you know. If you look at that style as the way Mark's telling his gospel, it's incredible. He's doing exactly that. And Jesus is this sort of like come and go, amazing, superpowered guy who does weird stuff and nobody understands him. Just that alone makes the book worth reading one time through, if you can just put that mantle on top of the thing. Now in this then, I'm just going to try to answer for you today why this second reading, or excuse me, this second feeding of thousands of people is not just here accidentally, but is here because Mark is so good. He's writing, you know, detective fiction, give or take, you know, thousands of years of, ahead of anybody else. Uh, well, why would he then go and put this in? It's not there on accident. It's not a mistake. Maybe there's something in the details we're missing because we're just reading the English like a bunch of nincompoops. Maybe we're trusting what people translated and never bothered to challenge it. And I'm not asking you as, as laity to challenge it, but I am asking you just to know there is a difference here. And I'm going to try to show it to you in the text. It's really evident in this one. But we can just start off with in those days at the start of chapter 8. Just know, I mean, if you want to highlight that in your own head, maybe not on the page, but write it down. In those days, for Mark particularly, but you can transport it back to the Old Testament, means God Almighty is about to get busy on this stuff. It's been boring up till this point, but God's about to show up. That's what in those days means. Like every time it's there, that's what it means. So you can know something insane is about to happen. Mark wants you to see it. Like you don't just get that from the English in those days. Yeah, You get that by looking at the language in Mark in the Greek. And thankfully, there are commentaries that do allow that. Commentaries are not bad. We hear that then in the story, a lot of similarities. And this is where the scholars liked to focus is that Mark's stories and like say Matthew's same story. Matthew will have more stories and be a longer book, but Mark's stories will be longer stories with more detail about each one in a shorter book, which is interesting when you start to compare them to each other, not as one who wants to rip it apart, but to see the details. What you have here is just a very long discussion of what you already heard two chapters ago in a different place. There's a great crowd that's gathered. They have nothing to eat. Jesus talks to his 12. He says he has compassion. Key word right there, compassion. 
Whenever Jesus has this spleen-related word, it's like I pour out my heart to you word. Whenever that's there, Jesus is about to get busy himself. He's going to do something for people. And truly, this is the central character of God. If you want to talk about that word, keseth in Hebrew, you can write it on your paper, K-S-T-H, keseth in Hebrew. The, the steadfast love of the Lord that's all the way through the Old Testament, we're always translated as steadfast love. This compassion word here is like the New Testament version of that. That's all really cool stuff. That's how he feels about this crowd. They've been with him three days, he says. That's a long time to stick around with somebody just because he's teaching stuff. I mean, his words must have been incredible. But his disciples, even though they saw recently, two chapters ago, that he fed 5,000 men and then probably women and children to boot with five loaves of bread and two fish, strangely, they don't at least say, hey, well, we got seven loaves of bread. Let's get busy. They don't say that at all. And we could, we could spend some time wondering what they're missing. The commentary I read had a pretty good answer. He said, well, they're not really asking if Jesus can do it. They're more tuned into what's going on in the story than anybody else is. And that's where now I'm going to jump out of the text and ask you, where is this? And so far you've seen it. In those days, God's getting busy. Jesus is there. Well, it's probably in Israel, right? Maybe. Right? The text hasn't told us as we've looked at it. But if you scoop back in the text, which I can't do with my lectionary, but you can do in your Bible, you'll be able to figure out where they are. And they have left Israel. There has been conflict in Israel over the issue of Jesus not teaching purity and cleanness laws. Again, he's the dark hero here. He's against the authorities. All the good guys, they're the bad guys, the Pharisees. They're the good guys in real life. Huh? And he's against them now. And he's been driven by conflict in conversation with them. He's not running, but he's moving to where there's no conflict. So people who want to hear him teach can. And he's moved outside of Israel. So, Think about this. What are the cleanest laws about? And so far, I believe we've seen things like how you wash your hands when you come back from the market. That's a big one. But what's at the market that makes it so you have to wash your hands? Non-Jews. When you, when you go around food with non-Jews, you're ritually unclean. So where are they about to have food with people who are not Jews? Now, this is the difference. The first story was in Judea. They were all Jews. This story is all pagans, unbelievers, total, like witches, probably, harlots, prostitutes, also, whoever, politicians. They were all coming out to him, thousands of people. He's been driven from Judea, and what does he do? His own received him not, and what does he do? He gives to all more anyway. Compassion, steadfast love, the God, who is the God who created us in Genesis 2. And made it that good. I want to give more. I want to give more. I want to give more. The only thing in the way is you stopping me. And what you think more is. And that's why you stop him. Is because you think more is evil, usually. And he says, no, no, no. This is good over here. So I think you followed me on that much. Now, I want to give you more details out of the passage, though. So they've been with him all this time. It's a desolate place. The disciples are picking up on the racial issue. And, and make no mistake, Judaism at this time was, was racist. Straight up, by any definition of the term. Uh, that doesn't mean every Jew today is racist, right? But, but the second temple Judaism was straight up racist. The word Gentile is a derogatory term, unequivalent with the N-word, for cultural usage. And in that time and place, everybody had this. Everybody hated everybody. So everyone talked bad about everybody. So whatever, you know, get over it. But, but understand, though, that's very much part of the story, too. Like, you, this is the thing about to toppling statues of General Lee, 
The problem is not that, that we got to teach that he's not a, he was a slave owner. That was bad. Now you can't do that. Now you can't teach there was a slave owner and we stopped it. Now you just got whatever they tell you. That's the problem, right? You take away the evil man and you have no good story. In any case, Jesus is the good man who comes to take away the evil from us in this desolate place. He makes them sit down, and we want to zoom in now on two things. How they sit down in the numbers. How they sit down is a very unique detail. So this is for the nerd out there, okay? But it's, it's pretty cool. So in Mark chapter 6, the previous feeding of 5,000 in Judea, he makes them sit down, but completely differently. He puts them into orders, groups of 10 by 10 and hundreds by hundreds with leaders over them. What this does is mimic what Moses does with the Israelites on Mount Sinai. So now suddenly you don't just have Jesus just doing what God does, making food. But now he's new Moses as well, ordering the troops on Sinai. Now here, among the nations, he doesn't do that. He just says, sit down. And what this shows is the, I'm going to throw a really confusing passage at you. The old wine into, excuse me, the new wine into old wineskins problem of Old New Testament. That when the, the same gospel of old comes in Jesus, the container, the, the ritualistic container that the words about it happening were in to that point no longer could suffice because he was too good for it. He was better than it. It was a container of ritual and law, and he put about an explosion of spirit. Not that the spirit didn't work before, but we are promised in the New Testament he is working among the nations now. And that's the big difference. All peoples, not just one bloodline, which is why any talk about slavery needs to be understood also in this ancient world and having nothing to do about without, with like bloodlines. I've heard it said this past year, and I can't believe that people are this ignorant, that Americans invented slavery. I've heard that said, not from you, but somewhere. That's an amazing thing. Slavery is like as old as people. Joseph, anybody read the Bible ever? Like, I mean, I'm pretty sure it's been around a long time. Joseph was sold to his cousins, like second cousins by a different mom. They bought him. That's how great humanity is. We've been around that long. Now, I'm not going to try to address the problems of social reparation. That is, how do we reconcile as humans the fact that 200 years ago, people were worse than we think we are now without becoming them? That's my fear, right? And all the talk about slavery is always hampered with that. Because we can't just say, yep, it was wrong, and yep, it's over, and yep, we're the nation that stopped it. Because everyone was doing it before that. In Britain, they were working on it. I believe they let people out early. Western Europe was working on it. But in terms of worldwide, we led the way. And we split our nation in half to do it. And we lost the republic to do it. We lost our rights as states for the freedom of individuals. It's a promise, as Martin Luther King Jr. himself said. And I believe it firmly. I wish we'd listen to his speech more often. Not the new gobbledygook that they're preaching, which is all hate. His speech talks about the promise that is given in the Declaration of Independence, unfulfilled. Frederick Douglass said as much way before that. A promise to all men, unfulfilled as of yet. And that's where we are today. Fine, say that. Let's keep working toward fulfilling it. But right now, man, I'm afraid that people are watching this to clip something I say about slavery out of it. Out of it and in like 30 years, they'll use it somehow to try to what? Bring Antifa to our door if we get successful in getting people to listen to us talk about this stuff? I don't know. So I'm just going to say it like it is. 
slavery is a rot and it's still in the United States, is in North Dakota, in the West, where the oil pipeline stuff's going on. There's been sex trafficking up there for years. You don't hear about it. That's because the people telling you about it are making money telling you, and they're telling you what they want you to hear. So am I. I do have a different message. <laughs> All this said, off on a tangent a little bit there, slavery. Slavery is what we get pulled into now in the bounty of Jesus. So Jesus, again, back to Mark for a second, and we're going to jump to Romans 6. He makes them sit down, the new abundant God, no longer under the tyranny of the old wineskins. And he takes these seven loaves, same total number as five loaves and two fish, seven. Holiness of God, always seven, the holiness of God. He, with the holiness of God, takes everybody there. One time it's 5,000, one time it's 4,000, 5,000 Jews, 4,000 non-Jews. Could it be that the four is symbolic of the four corners of the earth and the world and the nations? Possibly, but the 5,000 is harder to link up. So I don't really think there's much going on with those numbers. But those sevens, that holiness that Jesus is working with to begin with, they do turn into something very interesting. And that is these baskets. So that with the Jewish people, in Jewish baskets, they pick up 12 basketfuls of bread after taking five loaves of bread and two fish and feeding 5,000 people. In Mark 8, they take up seven Roman creel baskets full of bread after taking seven loaves of bread and feeding 4,000 plus odd people. Well, okay, what is that? First off, seven and seven, holiness of God, right? Twelve with the Jews, 12 tribes of Israel, but the disciples are there, 12 disciples to become the future of the church, is the church's number. And then as the church is being rejected in Israel, where does it go? Into the nations, the holiness of God, Jesus at the center is still there. Now he makes not 12, but seven more holiness, just more holiness. And the best part is what happens with these Roman baskets now. Seven creels is significantly more bread than 12 Jewish baskets. It's like a military level transport basket for, for the time. It's so much bread, it's ridiculous. So it makes you have to know Right, That the promises of, say, Amos, that the reaper is going to overtake the plower because the crops are coming so fast you don't even have to grow the grain, that's already here in Jesus. And the rest of that bit in Amos, by the way, talks about how the, the hills will drip sweet wine. And so don't miss that the bread promised in Jesus is connected to wine, which is connected to another promise of Jesus we'll get to in, in just a moment. But... That abundance now overflows into this idea of slavery. And we have to look at it without the American, what? Is it white fragility or is it white guilt or is it just more racism? I don't know. But I know the Bible says slavery is good and God's good and the Bible's good. So I must be able to find a way to unlearn what I've learned from the shouting people. I'm pretty sure the Bible teaches slavery of man to man is bad. And that's why we stopped it. We should never have it. The book of Philemon is all about it, by the way. It's been a Christian idea really from the start. No slavery. But this is slavery of man to man. Why would we think the only thing that can ever lord itself over you is a man? Like you would just have to be owned by it. Would you rather have a guy who knew you owned him and had to like harvest your crops 
or 50 people who didn't know you owed them and did whatever you told them to do. That's what TV does. Slaves in your minds is the issue. And I'm not telling you to turn off the TV entirely yet. I'm telling you, you have to pay attention with more than just watching. Because there's so many words going left and right. And if you don't pay attention, you won't notice that they told you a different story last week with the same agenda. Countering facts, same agendas. Both parties. What are you slaved to, enslaved to? Now, the text. Okay. Paul's going to say something else is pretty cool here right at the start. Verse 19, Romans 6, 19. Deep dive. I am speaking in human terms, he says. I'm going to talk in a terminology that actually doesn't exist in paradise or in the world to come. Slavery. The terminology is skewed. It's like looking at the tree and calling it a test. It's just a bent way of looking at it. But he's going to talk about it so that we can understand just how deep it goes. So I speak in human terms because of your natural limitations. Right now, you are selfish individuals who cannot conceive of perfection. So let's look at it this way so you can at least see it imperfectly. Through the most powerful thing I, I think you could maybe imagine in some sense is slavery. What is slavery? What is it to be owned? He says, you once presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness leading to more lawlessness. So now present your members as slaves to righteousness leading to sanctification. So here's his introduction of the word slavery, and he connects it to two potential realities. Again, I'm going to encourage you to hear this as a combination of mental slavery, emotional slavery, and ultimately, because you're a human and all those things happen with your body, it can be your own self-imposed physical slavery. I'm not talking about health and wellness. I'm just talking about what you'll let yourself believe is true. Okay. So in that, these different types of slavery come together as impurity in you. Right? The selfishness that you are, the curved inwardness on yourself you inherit from Adam, is then putting your emotions and your thoughts and your body into chains of your own making. But Paul says you're not there anymore, Christian. You can know everybody else is. They're all chained to lies. Some lie, doesn't matter which one. Any lie will do, honestly. It can be aliens. And it has been more than a lot recently. Don't be like that, he says, because you're not already. And this is so key. This is not a commandment of how you got to grow and get better or else. This is about understanding who you already have become by declaration. You're not like them. You have a different mind. What are they like, by the way? This language, lawlessness leading to more lawlessness, is very helpful, especially right now, for understanding what sin does. I said a moment ago what sin is, curved inward minds and hearts. What sin does is breaks laws. Any that is not mine. You keep my laws, I break my laws, I break your laws. Lawlessness. You can call it anarchy if you want to make it a political statement if you want. But really, we all kind of do this. Because you know as soon as they're not pulling you over for that speed limit, you're probably not keeping it. The human heart is lawless. And when you have nothing to counter it, no word from the Almighty God about redemption, salvation, Jesus, any of that, Ten Commandments, goodness, evil, any of that, why slavery is actually bad. Without all of that, what do you have? But that curved inward self. And so the world becomes enslaved to that very impurity. And you watch it all the time and you say, what's going on? We are going on. That's what's going on. 
But that lawlessness leading to more lawlessness really being acted out on display for the world to see right now in our cities is the opposite of you being presented to God as a slave of righteousness. And this is a place where I do want you to cross or at least note in your Bible by that word righteousness. It's the same thing I made you do like a week ago. That's the same root as the word justification. So if you want this text to feel like a happy text, learn what justification means and read it that way. Now, present yourselves as slaves to justification by grace through faith in Jesus alone. Know that that's what you are and present yourself to the world as such. That's what he says. I think it's pretty awesome, except then I'm a slave to being saved by Jesus. That makes Jesus, what would I call him if I'm a slave? And here's the thing. This is what I saw a, a, a woman preacher of another ethnicity trying to undo evils in her community and trying to do so by de denigrating the word master. And while the word master has been used with great appalling effect all over the world, I'm afraid that the Bible calls Jesus yours. He is your master. Now, again, Paul says this is human terminology. If you really want to get to the good stuff, go to kingdom. He's your king. You're his citizen. Not like a communist. <laughs> Not at all. But more like the medieval world. And while the medieval world showed, again, how wicked men are when they have power, the idea that your king is, in fact, the face of God to you is a wonderful thing. And it's what Jesus is. A much better way to look at it. But, but when we talk about our sinful condition, it's better to talk about it as slavery because that's what it is. Mental slavery. You once were in that. Now that you've been taken out of it, don't present yourself to it. Fight back. Verse 20 says, when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. And this is maybe the most confusing sentence as a sentence, but the most important nugget in this thing. Before you know in conscience, something is evil, you're free to do it. Most of us learn in some way that something is evil when somebody does it to us. Like if no one ever tells you it's wrong to kill or wrong to hurt their body, like as soon as someone does it to you, you realize it's wrong. And very quickly, the group will form some sort of a cohesive protection around those Ten Commandments, whether they know them or not. Uh, but, but that does not mean, it does not mean uh, that you cannot so sear your conscience, so make it unable to even see how you're hurting others that you can live a life of evil and never know it. In fact, that's the normal. So that even when people have formed community groups that have some rules so they don't kill each other, they still live in hate. Most sadly, small town church life I've ever seen is still battling that. It's sad. Why are Christian churches not growing? That could be why. That being said, to be free in regard to righteousness, to goodness, also here means justification. So the life of unbelief is the life of not knowing. You can't die. You can't be sent to hell. You're a son of God. The world can't touch you. You just never get to know that. You're free with regard to that. But that's what mental slavery is. You, you have no confidence aside from yourself. And golly, what a terrifying place this must be for that. And then he asked this really good question, though. So here's the, here's the question, verse 21. What fruit were you getting before you became a Christian from the things that now, when you are a Christian and you do, them make you feel bad because you know the wrong? Well, the end of those things is death. That's what fruit you were getting. Right, so the end of our curved inward desire to make ourselves gods is death. 
The slavery of our mental condition is a life of hatred that leads to death. This is going somewhere at the end of this text very wonderfully, but first we have verse 22. Now you have been set free from sin. That's that Romans 6 stuff from last week, right? 623. Is that right? No, that's where we are now. From last week, you must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ. It'll be just above in the text. That same idea comes back. You have been set free from sin. It, it can't contain you. Even the one you just did, yes, and that one too. Did you just do another? It actually still can't contain you unless you believe it can and don't believe Jesus takes it away and give yourself over to it, but that's on you. It can't contain you in Jesus. Slave of God and the fruit you get is not death. It leads to sanctification and it's eternal life. Now, sanctification, always got to be careful with that word. Holiness, not good works. Do people who are holy do good works? Yes. But is sanctification first and foremost good works? No, it is holiness. It's to be near Jesus. It's to be near Jesus. Can you be near Jesus and do evil? Not for long. Will he just cast you out? No, that's not what he does. He changes you. And sanctification leading to eternal life, is that happening now? Eternal life is when he comes again or when you die. Right now, you are a sinner in grace. And you get to see all your ugly and you get to see everybody else's ugly and then see how their ugly is just like yours and also fixed by Jesus by more grace. Mm, it's so good. The verse you should memorize, like tattoo it on your arm if you're going to do something like, like that. Like don't do, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. That's, that, that won't help you probably. Do this one. The wages of sin is death. Put that on your arm and see if a conversation starts with someone at the bar. The free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. I earn every bad thing I get. God gives every good thing I get. And best of all, in Jesus, he said, he's just going to keep giving more until that's all that's left. So good, isn't it? To cap it all off like that, but I got one more piece. I learned just this morning from a friend. I love what the internet can give us. It's very dangerous in many ways. But I have a friend who, uh, he told me a while back, I was allowed to ask him random questions about Hebrew. At seminary, I gave a lot of attention to Hebrew. Um, I got a 96 on our passing examination. I believe one guy got a 98 and there were four between us. So I was the sixth in class and that meant a lot to me back then. Um, but I proceeded to be able to use it enough to get through class and then lose it entirely on my vicarage year. If someone shows me Hebrew and like points at stuff, I can follow what they say, but I really don't have a chance. I focus on Greek and that was really my strength. Um, this is neither good nor ill, it is what is I think. It'd be great if I had both. But I have a friend who lives very far away who's told me, any Hebrew question you have, ask me it. So when I come to a text and I don't understand what's going on and I want to get past the English, I ask him and he gives me an answer. And I was asking him about Genesis 2. I was asking him about this living creature language and the breath of life language. And the only thing I want to pull from it now is what he just told me this morning, because I would have missed it entirely. And if it hadn't been for this note, I wouldn't have said it again this morning. Go all the way back now to God making man and then breathing on him. At first, he's of the dust of the earth, clay. That's the word for earth there. And man, Adam, is connected to that word. And he goes and he breathes on it. And now he's a man. Now jump forward to the night of the resurrection in the upper room, John chapter 20, where Jesus appears and the disciples are a little nervous. And before he does anything else, what's he do? He breathes on them. Why? Because the creative life that made him a living spirit once is now restored. Ah, 
It's an amazing thing. That upper room, same upper room, it would seem, where the feast of bread and wine was first established and where I believe it did continue at times after that. That feast now, the one you're going to have here. So that everything I've been telling you about this is both an idea for you to understand, a practice for you to do, but better and beyond all of that, simply a gift that's just being poured out on you and is never going to stop. The only thing in the way is you thinking the white noise is more interesting. I promise you that. I'm not saying you have to become a nerd like I do and go you know, knee deep and all this stuff, but I can tell you this. If you have a question about the English, <laughs> and I was crested about a Bible passage, you have a pastor who answers questions online all the time for people. You could join that community or you could just ask me. I'm always happy to talk about it. The goal in all of it is to give you that St. Paul mindset, right? That you know what your hymnal is good for, devotions. You know what your Bible is good for, study. Huh? You know what a pen and paper are good for? Well, put it into practice. Understanding what it means tomorrow and the next day. Reminding yourself of how good it is every day when you wake up. It's easier than you think. It's harder than you think. We're going to do it together. Let's begin with why we're here with the supper. In Jesus' name, amen.